The scripture reading tonight is from Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat? Or, What will we drink? Or, What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The word of the Lord. I've always thought these words from the Gospel of Matthew were beautiful. Perhaps beautiful because they are such unlikely words. We all worry about our daily necessities, increasingly so these days. What can Jesus possibly mean not to worry about these matters of basic need? The birds of the air and the lilies of the field? What have we to do with them? We have to provide for ourselves, for our families, or only a step away from homelessness and destitution otherwise. The text refers to the glories of King Solomon, one of the most favored of all the kings in the Old Testament, perhaps the most favored, unlike his fascinating, heroic, and tragically flawed father, King David, Solomon enjoyed uninterrupted might and prosperity. Yet not even Solomon was as blessed or beautiful as these lilies. And as the text tells us, they are only grass. If God loves and blesses them so unconditionally, surely we are more blessed and favored. And yet, we know that things are not so easy for us. We strive, we work, we falter, we fail. We know we are not like birds or lilies. We spend our whole lives trying to establish ourselves, become self-sufficient, financially stable. We may pray to God, But as the cliche says, God helps those who help themselves. But ultimately, our strength will leave us, and we will be more vulnerable than the birds and the grasses. I was reminded of that recently when my two sons, my niece and I, visited my aging parents in Fergus Falls, Minnesota a couple weeks ago. 
My father had been a very, he's 87 now, he'd been a very prominent and successful lawyer. He built the largest, most robust law firm in outstate Minnesota, served as president of the Minnesota Bar Association. But when I last saw him, he was like a shadow of himself. He, he was unable to get out of bed without help. He weighed only about 120, 130 pounds. He had been transferred from an assisted living apartment where he and my mother were to the hospital when it looked to my brothers and me as if he were dying. The hospital managed to rehydrate him and give him a blood transfusion, but he could not return to the assisted living apartment due to the care he now needs. So they moved him to a nursing home, and that's where we visited him. We walked into his room. He was sitting in a reclining chair and seemed not even to recognize us. But he rallied some and was still able to dominate the conversation for the better part of three hours, actually. At one point, he asked my son Nick to help him stand up. As Nick lifted him from the chair, I saw that he was wearing nothing but an adult diaper, and his legs were so thin I couldn't see how he could stand at all, and he really couldn't on his own. Birds of the air, lilies of the field, an old man in his last days, dust thou art, to dust returneth. But when he had a moment alone with me, my father took my hand and told me how much he appreciated my visit. A strong man who could be emotionally and physically violent he found a way to affirm his love for me. His worldly treasures were as nothing in the moment. All his accomplishments as nothing in that moment. Love itself, a powerful mixture of material and spiritual qualities, was all that mattered to him. He had lived a flawed life, compromising love at every point with his insecurities, which he masked so successfully by power and ambition. But in this moment, he was nothing but vulnerable, and he looked into my eyes with the need for love and, and nothing else. So if there's one message that emerges from the Gospels as a whole, it's probably this one that's set forth in this text from Matthew. Do not store your treasures on earth, but in heaven. Strive not for worldly power and wealth, but for spiritual riches. We at House of Mercy take this message seriously, I guess, because it seems we're always long on spiritual and cultural riches, but short on funds. It often seems a foolish way to live. Perhaps why, that's why there used to be a movement called Fools for Christ. The wisdom of the world is the foolishness of God, the wisdom of God, the foolishness of the world. Realizing the challenge set forth in this passage from Matthew may be the essence of faith itself in some ways at least. I mean, not to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear, about where our money will come from, is a challenge so few of us can ever embrace. One thinks of perhaps the heroes of faith, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King. You know, one person that comes to my mind, um, based on a trip that I took to El Salvador about a dozen years ago, is Archbishop Oscar Romero. Romero was a priest from El Salvador who rose to become archbishop. And for reasons no one understands entirely, he went from being a conservative priest to 
a champion of the people and of the poor and of the struggling country, and eventually a martyr to the faith. So the injustice that was plaguing El Salvador finally exploded in rebellion during the 70s. And I should add, it's very tough there right now, too. It really is. The crime rate is through the roof. But um, then it was government repression. And a new movement had arisen within the Catholic Church liberation theology. Many priests stepped out of their pulpits to join the struggle with the poorest of their parishioners. So as a hedge against this movement, the Vatican decided to appoint a conservative to the archbishop's office, Oscar Romero. But happy as the elites were with Romero's appointment, a couple things worried them. And that brings us back to Matthew, because Romero seemed to shun, shun luxury, and he insisted on living like a poor parish priest. He wouldn't live in the archbishop's mansion. He lived in a humble apartment. And despite his good conservative credentials, um, he was personally close to some of the liberation priests, one in particular, Father Otilio Grande. And the rich hated Father Grande more than any other priest because he treated the poor like equals and preached that Jesus wanted everybody to live with dignity. So soon after Romero became the archbishop, a right-wing death squad killed Father Grande as he was driving his battered Jeep along a dirt road on his way to celebrate a mass. And some say that uh, Romero was blinded by his own tears that night and that the scales fell from his eyes as he viewed Father Grande's mangled corpse. Um, some describe it as the moment of Romero's conversion. It, it's, maybe it's irrational to think a 59-year-old man would change his convictions in just a couple moments, but in the end, it's hard to say because so much about Oscar Romero has taken on a quality of myth, a story told by people to reveal a truth about themselves far deeper than can be conveyed by a string of objective facts. What is known is that he took our, our gospel text from Matthew seriously. He parted ways with the access to power and riches that he had as archbishop, and he cast his lot with the poor. So his first defiant act was to hold a single mass in all of El Salvador the following Sunday in honor of Father Grande and two peasants who'd been killed alongside him. And Romero addressed the murders, murderers directly. He says, who knows if the one whose hands are bloodied with Father Grande's murder, if those who have killed, who have tortured, who have done so much evil are listening to me. Listen there in your criminal hideout, perhaps already repentant, you too are called to forgiveness. Now, the rich didn't like that preaching, but they knew Romero would have to respond to the murder of his priest, but he didn't stop there. Talking directly to the people, he said, you are the image of the divine victim, pierced for our offense. If they ever take our radio, suspend our newspaper, silence us, Put all of us priests to death, bishops included, and you are left alone without priests. Then each of you will have to be God's microphone. Each of you will have to be a messenger, a prophet. And to those who said that a bishop ought to pour oil on troubled waters, Romero responded, peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the silent result of violent repression. Peace is the generous, 
tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Peace is dynamism. Peace is generosity. It is right and it is duty. Even when they call us mad, when they call us subversives and communists and all the epithets they put on us, we know we only preach the subversive witness of the Beatitudes, which have turned everything upside down. Now, what did the Beatitudes teach? That's in Matthew 2, that Jesus identifies most closely with the vulnerable, the impoverished, the suffering, the weak, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, the grasses, people with nothing. So the military, they started to distribute flyers that said, be a patriot, kill a priest. But Romero no longer believed that the church should protect itself when its people are being abused and killed. He was thinking of God's care for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He'd surrendered his worldly concerns even his concern for life itself, to God's care, he warned that a church that suffers no persecution but enjoys the privileges and the support of the things of the earth is not the true church of Jesus Christ. So Romero called on the rulers and the military to repent, but there was no repentance. So then Romero took his last sort of fatal act. He decided he'd speak directly to the military. And he said, brothers, you come from our own people. You are killing your own brothers. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. It is high time you obeyed your consciences rather than sinful orders. The church could not remain silent before such an abomination. In the name of God, in the name of this suffering people whose cry rises to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, Stop the repression. Well, this time Romero had gone too far. The next day he said a simple mass in a small chapel. After finishing his homily, he walked out from behind the altar. A car pulled up uh, in front of the open double doors. Uh, Doors are open in El Salvador. It's very hot and there isn't much air conditioning. And, And a gunman shot Romero in the chest. The bullet pierced his heart. By the time they reached the hospital and probably long before Monsignor Oscar Romero had died, or so it seemed. Yet in the cities and the mountain villages, people listened over and over again to recordings of his sermons. His words were published throughout El Salvador and around the world. His picture hung in homes and chapels throughout Latin America. Many began calling him a saint. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that Um, Romero's life or the life of King or Dorothy Day is something that I'm going to be able to ever even approximate. Um, But I am saying that there's a testimony um, that we have in, in the Gospels through Jesus and through other people. There, I could talk about countless others, including people much less prominent than Romero, who reach a point that they um, they recognize the only real treasure we ever have, given our mortality and the fickleness of fate, is uh, the treasure that you find in love. 
Um, you know, I've found that myself. I've struggled with major depression the last couple years. And what really matters to me now is not um, six-figure income or, um, you know, a lot of accomplishments or accolades, but, you know, the love of my family and the uh, compassion that I can give and receive. And that's what, where I think my dad is, too, finally. Taking him 87 years, but he's finally there. So anyway, there I was in the streets of San Salvador just before Easter on a warm evening, 30 years after Monsignor Romero's martyrdom. I was walking in a procession with thousands of people, and each of us were carrying a lighted candle. It was hard to keep the flame lit in the wind, but we sheltered them with lanterns made out of paper and glass and plastic. And as I reached the bottom of a steep hill, I looked back and saw flowing up behind me an endless stream of people holding lighted candles, each of us like a drop of water in a river reflecting the fractured light of star fragments moving slowly along together from a point of mysterious origin to a destination that none of us could see. And, you know, I met a young nun there in El Salvador, and um, she said, I didn't know Monsignor Romero during his life, but I've known him in the resurrection. And I don't know if that sounds um, uh, sacrilegious or something to talk about the resurrection applying to anybody but Jesus, but of course, what is the real weight and symbolic meaning of the resurrection? and this passage from Matthew about storing your treasures in heaven. It's that, um, you know, your influence lives on, your acts of compassion live on, your, um, your devotion to other people live on. It lives on in their lives and in the lives of generations and generations to come. When I was there in El Salvador, it was 30 years after Romero had died and the streets were full, and I bet they will be when there's another anniversary. So the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, however unattainable these words may seem to us, they speak a wisdom that will come to us all in the end. Mm -hmm.